Hello everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Today we're talking about days that have shaped, have changed, have steered Britain on its majestic course towards the present with Andrew Hindmore, the head of politics at the University of Sheffield. He's written a new book talking about those influential days. Fascinating stuff. Going up on History Hit TV at the moment, we have got our trip around Westminster Abbey with Sir David Cannadine, one, well, you know, one of the greatest... British historians taking us around one of the greatest British buildings. Westminster Abbey is the central religious site of the English and British state in the heart of London, just across the road from Westminster Abbey. This October, October 2019, is the 750th anniversary of the rebuilding of Westminster Abbey by good old Henry III. Henry III doesn't really get a look in with many people, but actually he did a lot of stuff, including rebuild Westminster Abbey. And that, so that magnificent building you see today is largely the work of Henry III, not, sadly, his Norman or Anglo-Saxon predecessors. This is why I created History at TV. Proper history in proper places by remarkable historians at length. It's only available at History at TV. It's exclusive. Go and use the code POD3, P-O-D-3, and you get a month for free. Then you get three months each for just one pound. Crazy. Also, stuff you do if you love history is we are pairing up with Chelsea History Festival in the heart of fashionable Chelsea in West London. If you go to the website chelseahistoryfestival.com, you will see their slate of remarkable speakers. You've got to go over there. If you're in London listening to this, it's happening. It's happening today. It's happening Friday. It's happening Saturday. You're going to love it. It's in Chelsea Hospital, one of the most gorgeous buildings in London, built by Sir Christopher Wren on the orders of Charles II because he was embarrassed that Louis XIV had Hotel des Invalides and he did not have anything like it. So go and check that out. ChelseaHistoryFestival.com. Right, that's enough housekeeping. Here is Andrew Hindmore. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I mean, it's such an interesting way of thinking about history because often we're told that history is driven along by these great sort of substructural forces. You're putting the day, you're putting the contingency back into history. Yeah, look, a lot of time, I guess, I guess I'm interested is when I teach history to students about the big forces that push push politics along. So at the moment, obviously spending a lot of time talking about Brexit, British politics, you know, I kind of have a habit of wanting to go back to the late 1970s, talk about big economic shifts, big political shifts. I guess if you're trying to focus people's attention, then sometimes focusing upon one day is just a really nice artifice to get people going. And it is just sometimes the case that some days do make a difference. Now, you might get to a point where, you know, the day could have happened anyway, in a different way at a different time. I guess you choose 9-11. You know, the way that we can see the build-up of the terrorist attacks, if it hadn't been then, it might have been somewhere else. But even then, it makes a difference because the precise coincidence of the timing, who's in power at the time, how they react, that makes a huge difference. So, yeah, sometimes I think particular days do make a difference, even if you never want to escape those big forces. Yeah, true. Uh, You think about the two US presidential elections, think about Florida in 2000, hanging chairs, you think about 100,000 votes in three states in November 2016, I mean, it, it's pretty hard to argue that those days didn't didn't really, really matter. Yeah, I guess, you know, what is it? Horse a horse, a kingdom for my horse. Sometimes it's the small things that turn out to make big differences. And certainly if you were the Democratic official in charge of counting votes in Florida, because it was a Democrat, then, you know, you're going to look back on things and think that you made a big difference at, at that time. So, yeah, look, individual days. I remember reading the, um, you know, the novel David Nichols one day. I came into a film. 
I'm guessing that was me, what, 20 years ago now. So that's an artifice that he uses in that one, playing out the story of a couple's relationship on one particular day, recurring over years and years, and you catch them at snapshot moments. And that was something I remember reading it and just thought it was a really powerful. There's other novels that, that, that do that, focus upon one particular day or play out days over different times. But it just felt, as soon as I started writing, it was one of those that I just knew it was, it was the right way to do it. Because as an historian, it gets you away from trying to always tie of one thing to another thing. And you never actually get to the point of what you're trying to say because you're always contextualizing it. So, yeah, look, it, it worked for me. And then I had a lot of fun picking out what the days would be and then trying to map that over a period of time. Now, I'm going to ask you to tell me about the days that you've chosen, but I want to ask you first, which days didn't make the list? What didn't make the difference list is a really interesting one, because I think one of the things I've got interested in is sometimes you get days that look at the time like they might matter a lot and that you might look back on them and think that they were going to make a huge difference. Think about Tony Blair elected in 97. I guess another one for Tony Blair that I think is really interesting, which everyone forgets, is it's 1996, January 1996, and Blair, way ahead in the polls, turns up for some reason in Singapore and gives his famous stakeholder, well, it was famous at the time, stakeholding speech in which Blair starts to talk about needing to rebuild British capitalism, long-term investment, uses phrases like for the many, not for the few, that actually when you look back on the speech, a long time later, actually have that ring of a kind of radical new Labour that actually ends up in office not being implemented. So that was a day that looked at the time like it was going to bite and didn't turn. Another one for me, I guess, would be the death of Diana. So at the time, that kind of tumultuous moment in 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 Britain, that kind of moment of feeling like you were teetering on the edge of a precipice, it, uh, those few days where it wasn't obvious that what was going to happen looked like the royal family might have lost a kind of groundswell of public opinion, a kind of Black Wednesday moment, just as John Major lost that public sentiment so quickly. And I felt at the time, and I, you know, I was around, around at the time, that that might be such a moment, yet we know how things turn out. And we know that the royal family, we know in terms of press and its relationship with the royal family, it just doesn't look nearly as important as it might have done at the time. So, yeah, I'm really interested in the days that happened that looked at the time as if they might matter. Here's another one, Margaret Thatcher coming back from finally getting the budget resolution at Fontainebleau. So she spends four years butting heads with European leaders, gets a budget deal, and everyone then kind of forgets that for a year afterwards, Margaret Thatcher said, I'm now I'm with budget issue settled. I want us to be the pro-European party. I want more integration. I want Britain to be at the lead. We know it just doesn't work out like that. Another one that we've forgotten and it's a really recent one, which is Theresa May entering office and post David Cameron. And she comes in and stands outside Downing Street and gives a speech about what she wants to achieve. All politicians do. Margaret Thatcher famously does, right? But what she outlines in that speech is a really radical, almost left-wing sounding conservative agenda. She's talking about how the previous Conservative government had come to be perceived as being just for a few people, for an elite. She says in changing times, coming through economic crisis, the Conservatives have to reposition themselves as the party can appeal to working class voters. But crucially also then says what we need is state intervention. So she draws a line under a kind of free market, neoliberal as it gets called, economics. That was one that I really... At the time it happened, which was around the time that I was starting to write about this one, felt like it was a, a huge moment. And that's how history kicks you in the head, because we know how that one ends. You know, that kind of agenda that I think she felt sincerely. Nick Timothy, who was a chief of, chief of staff, 
you know, been pushing that kind of, it's too simple to say left-wing conservatism, but like disestablishment conservatism, quite radical, but they didn't have a policy agenda. She gets swamped by Brexit and she calls an election and everything goes horribly wrong. So it's another one where it felt like the day mattered. But as it turns out, actually history, that's one where it just rolls on those forces and every Brexit becomes everything. But sometimes the days do matter. And when we look back on them, we can see that chain of events from one thing to another. And that's when the day matters. It's only with the benefit of hindsight, I guess I'm saying. Okay, fine. Enough about the ones that didn't make it. Tell me about some of the days that have changed Britain. Okay, so um, one of the things that happened to me this year, the book's just come out, is that I turned 50. So in some ways, it's a kind of history of the things that I remember. So it starts in 1976, which I don't really remember. But I wanted to talk about, though, the end of the Labour government there. So I chose the James Callaghan speech just before the winter of discontent, a little bit of a gap, but it starts at one of those points at the fall of the Labour government and that sense of the kind of the established political economic order falling apart at the time. So James Callaghan um, standing up in front of the Labour Party conference, getting booed and then proclaiming to an audience that really didn't want to hear what he was talking about, that the Keynesian consensus that had underpinned the Second World War, the kind of assumption that government can manage the economy and can manage growth, that just wasn't happening. It was the start of a world recession and that kind of palpable sense that something was going to change. And then I go through, obviously, one of the biggest ones, election of Margaret Thatcher. Although I talk about that as kind of one of the forgotten stories because it's actually at the time, 1979 is a big deal, not so much for Thatcherism, we didn't have the term, but instead it was a story about gender having a first female prime minister and then run through. I try and avoid prime ministers on the whole, have a series of dates talking about economics, politics but also cultural things so I talk about the establishment of the Premier League as a kind of seminal moment in in British sport and then play it out going through to today so you got the economic crisis where I choose the collapse of Northern Rock but then through to the MPs expenses scandal and then obviously over the last few years everything becomes about Brexit so I take for that one the referendum result but also the signing of Article 50 which at the time and it's only a couple of years ago, so we've tended to forget this, but at the time that Article 50 goes through Parliament, it goes through with just a huge majority, and it actually feels like that's going to be one of the big turning points, that that's Brexit settled. And that's why, you know, you need hindsight sometimes for history, because we know that signing Article 50 actually turns out to be the first act in a longer story, not the actual turning point after all. Was it tempting to write about days that you've got a personal connection to? Yeah, so I've got a family connection. I grew up in, in Sheffield, which obviously is, is not a mining town, but I got to the north on my uh, mother's side, um, is, is Barnsley and a mining family, and then to the south on uh, my dad's side. My granddad moved down from the Durham mines when they closed to the Knotts mines. He was just coming up to retirement, so on my mother's side everyone was on strike, and then granddad wasn't on strike coming through to retirement. Grandad was a proud union man who, who kind of held a grudge from about 50 years before against the Yorkshire miners, who he felt hadn't helped out the Durham miners in an earlier strike. And, and he worked through just as he was coming through up to retirement. Sheffield was just in the epicentre of that at the time. So it's the time that I remember first getting interested in politics. I would have been, what, 14 or so at, at that time, 14, 15. And that kind of sense, you know, we had the anniversary of the miners' strike a while back. But it's really difficult to imagine. We're going through a period with Brexit and people talk about the nervous breakdown of the country and that division. But, you know, remembering just how polarised the country was at that time, how that one issue pulled everything in different directions. 
And then I talked within that one about the Orgreave, the Battle of Orgreave, which was in June, in June 1985, when pitch battle between miners and the police, the police shipped in from largely from London. That was Orgreave, which is just outside the city of Sheffield. So the miners come in on the train often and then walk out to it. That's now part of the University of Sheffield. It's the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre. So there's a nice kind of twist to the tale because I now work at the University of Sheffield and as a kind of symbol of post-industrial modernisation, you've gone from this being a coking plant through to, it's still technology, it's an engineering centre now, but like at the same time, a completely different world. Why does the, so why did you think the creation of the Premier League matter? Is, is that a story about the now dominant English Football League? That's right. So look, it's, it's significant in, in lots of different ways. So I play out the story of the creation of the Premier League, which is... It's an interesting phenomenon in its own right, and it, you know the way it changes how we watch football, the way in which people support football, the domination of the big teams. But I also try to tell it as a story about, really it's a story about economics more generally, so it's about globalisation, it's about inequality, and try and play out some of those stories against the backdrop of football. And it's another one where kind of age, is, um, age gives you a certain perspective. So I've got friends now... You know, and you're so used to having a game three, four times a week that you can turn on and watch on telly. And the argument becomes about saturation of football and about the domination of the big clubs that you can now always watch. And it's, we kind of forget just how recent that was. So growing up, how little football there was on telly. One of the reasons the FA Cup, which we now lament as being kind of it's lost its magic, etc., etc. Well, that's pretty simple. The FA Cup was one of the few games that was live on television. It was a big deal precisely because it was live on, on TV. So that way in which we've changed watching football, and I find it really interesting with football because it's this story of privatisation in a sense in that you know we now watch football at home. You know, You get your friends around, you watch it by yourself, but at the same time the way in which pretty quickly um, football became this social activity because you'd go to a pub. So, you know, pubs getting this kind of stream of business from being able to screen football matches. And that's something else that we take completely for granted now. Being able to go to a pub, watch football with other people and the whole pub kind of focused around that one. That's all relatively new and actually is something that we've got to remember happened because of deals that were struck that were driven by money and just had this knock on in terms of culture and in terms of the way we understand ourselves Premier League's also important because, you know, it's another story here is, and it isn't all about it going on to Sky by any means, but the sense in which football, although always the national game, had just been so tarnished that attendance had fallen for such a long period of time that that kind of dismay at supporting England around hooliganism, the sense that football was this quite boring, dated product, dangerous, Hillsborough, and then the Bradford fire disasters, Actually, the Sky TV get it lucky because they come in at just the point in which other things are beginning to change. So Gaza's tears at the World Cup, reigniting interest, and then suddenly getting this middle-class interest in football. So taking the working man's game and it's suddenly becoming far more of a national phenomena. Kind of small footnote on that one. Introduction of the Premier League and the broadcasting coincides with a change in the rules, which we completely forget now as well, which is the year that the back pass rule was 
um, prohibited. So there's absolute chaos during that first season because you've got brilliant defenders who've spent their whole lives and their first instinct is to pass the ball back to the goalkeeper. You get 1-0 up, you pass the ball back, and then you recycle it out to your fullback, goes into the central of the defence, and then you pass it again, pass it back again. Liverpool just killed games that way for year after year. And so this change, designed to encourage attacking football, which was massively opposed by most managers, it was seen as going to be the death of the game, actually encourages this attacking football style that reignites some of the passion and interest, and suddenly it's on. TV as, as, as well and just made for some hilarious moments in the first season as defenders who spent 20 years passing the ball back do it and suddenly find themselves giving away a free kick in the penalty box for their pains in doing so. So although I'm focusing upon particular days one thing I'm interested in is, is the way in which different forces come together and something that seemed relatively small like the back pass rule coinciding with the change in broadcasting right actually unleashes this chain of events that changes the way we think about whole sport in that instance. Because, of course, you mentioned the fact Alex Ferguson was not, didn't really want the Premier League to be established, and yet he went on to dominate it as no one else has. How many, how many, of, these days, how many of these days link together? How, how many of them sort of throw forward to the next, the next pivotal day? Yeah, so it's a, there's a kind of, that's one of the things in the book that I'm trying to... When I'm playing out the story of a day and how it changed, you've got to look at that broader context. So in the case, for example, of, you know, I talk about the Northern Ireland Agreement, but I also talk about um, the civil partnerships. Well, they're linked by a particular period in British politics, that new Labour phenomena. So, you know, there's an overarching set of bigger changes that are going on politically, but that link sometimes smaller things. Stephen Lawrence is a really interesting one because it links in a different way, which is actually to South Africa. So one of the things we forget about Stephen Lawrence now, which you know, we still remember that one. We, st- we now have Stephen Lawrence Day and, we, you know, it's, it's, it's perennially uh, uh, something that comes back to us and that we can talk about. Stephen Lawrence's murder was, was a big deal in London at the time. You know, the circumstances in which it happened, who he was, the family he came from. There'd been a series of other murders in the area beforehand that hadn't got the same degree of attention. Why does Stephen Lawrence get that degree of attention? Partly because he was, you know, by virtue, but just by virtue of who he was, he was such an up standing young man who just had a future ahead of him. There's another coincidence there, which is one of Nelson Mandela's first visits to London. Um, Mandela meets the family, um, the Lawrence family, and this is at a point when the police are, and we now know the allegations around corruption, around the investigation. There's nothing happening with the investigation. It looks like the same old story. It's, It's kind of died as a media story. At least it's beginning to look like it might die. And then suddenly Mandela goes out from having a meeting with the Lawrence family, goes and stands outside the hotel. He was visiting a hotel in London. This is before he'd actually seen power in South Africa and says, this is the kind of thing in a really measured tone. This is the kind of thing that happens in South Africa. Young black men die. He doesn't condemn the police. He's really judicious in what he says but he actually sparks an interest again in the Lawrence investigation. And it's almost immediately afterwards, and I guess it's one of those ones where we'll never know the full story, whether someone made a phone call to someone else, but the initial arrests are made in the case shortly afterwards. So I I, I like those coincidences of timing. Coming back to where you started, yeah, those big forces are always there, and governments and changes in government make a difference. And that's interesting to me because, you know, it's such a part of backdrop to politics nowadays that nothing changes, you know. Governments don't make a difference. Politicians never say what they're going to do. And I try and play some of those stories out around the MPs' expenses scandal. 
but also part of these stories is linked by those bigger changes in politics and liberalizations of attitudes that occur over a far longer period. And they're just brought into sharper focus at a particular moment. I noticed that your three most recent dates, uh, economics plays a big part. Money plays a big part. You've got Brexit, you've got MPs expenses, you've got the financial crash. Did you find yourself thinking a lot about economics? The, the, the ups and downs, the turning points, does it feel like they are economics is fundamental to shaping the course of history? Yeah, look, I think there's a period where from around the time John Major comes into power, Tony Blair inherits an economy, a global economy that's booming at the time. And you look back on that period, and for a long time, economics start to seem unimportant. We, we, we took for granted growth. Now, that growth generated inequality and generated really huge environmental concerns. But the fact of growth and rising living standards was something taken largely for granted. And in that context, the financial crisis, which I trace from the collapse of the Northern Rock Bank through to the global financial crisis and the collapse of Lehman Brothers a year later, that's kind of the full stop to that period. I think there's a kind of world before then and there's a world after then, and it's really difficult to see the politics of the last decade, austerity, the rise of populism, as having possible to occurred with the intensity that it's occurred without that financial crisis and without that shuddering halt, that sense of declining living standards, the accumulation of public debt, certainties about an economic model that just seemed to be delivering growth, of which the banking sector was the symbol lauded by Gordon Brown. So for me, yeah, look, in, in the end, I think it comes down to economics. The MPs' expenses scandal creates this absolute perfect storm because it's not like politicians are held in high regard. You know, by the period we're looking at, the 2005, 6, 7, Blair's being destroyed by the Iraq war. That whole kind of rhetoric there about spin and no substance is already there. It's not created by the MPs' expenses scandal, but flipping heck does it absolutely turbocharge that moment. So you get this coincidence of palpable, really significant um, economic dislocation at a moment where precisely the same moment in which everyone's worst fears about the political class are perceived to have been shown as completely true. So the economics drives it, but that political crisis is an absolute icing upon the cake. Because for a lot of people, that stuff around not trusting politicians, which has always been there, you can go back to the 1940s, you know, you can read mass observation reports during the war, coalition about what people think of politicians, practically no different from what they'd be saying today. But the MPs' expenses scandal absolutely cuts through all of the other noise of politics. It's the one thing at that time that everyone's heard of, everyone has a view of. Invariably, it's their local MP that they're angry at. And so at precisely the moment where you, know, you need the strongest political leadership to kind of rebuild an economic system, they just both implode at the same time. And that's a pretty frightening thing to happen. And that's what you see then playing out over you know, it would look to me playing out over the next decade. And the rise of populism, the rise of UKIP, Brexit is an implosion, that can be traced back pretty clearly to that period, I think. Sometimes people say, you know, that, that crucial period, you know, those 2000s, it's, it gets, it's the short decade. It starts in 2001 with the Twin Towers, it starts in New York, and then it ends in 2008 with Lehman Brothers again in New York, 
it's that seven year period, but that just looks like such a different world now from the one from the last 10 years. So people growing up teaching students now, they've just about got to the point where for me, James Callahan was kind of the, my first memory of politics. For them, Lehman Brothers now was the kind of the first, one of the first things they have a vague memory of. So we've now got a generation coming through for whom that's the new normal. And one of the points of history there is, I guess, to say how things that we now just look normal actually look really different. That's just a decade that we're talking about, but they're so different. Thanks very much for coming on the pod. What's the book called? So the book's called 12 Days That Made Modern Britain. It's published by Oxford University Press. My wife, who's singularly failed to read anything else that I've ever written over a 30-year academic career, has now read all but the final chapter and has pronounced that it's actually quite a good read. So I haven't put that on the book cover because obviously she hadn't read it at that point. But if there's anyone out there thinking whether they want to read a book about modern British history, my wife Jane can heartily recommend it. Thank you for coming on the pod. Thank you very much for having me. I think we'll have the history on our shoulders.